The History Channel original podcast. This episode contains content that may disturb some listeners, including the description of dramatic scenes of war. Lincoln had gone through about every other senior general in the Union Army at this point in time. And finally, Lincoln finds his general, a general who will actually fight. Here's the guy who won the campaign at Vicksburg, and he's being asked to do it again. The Union Army of the Cumberland is stuck down in this valley, trapped in a siege and starving. He's essentially being brought in as a kind of fixer. But all of Grant's success had been in the Western Theater, and everybody would argue, you're not out in the Western Theater anymore. You're fighting Robert E. Lee. From the History Channel, this is Making Grant. I'm Andre Dishier. The Union Army has had brilliant success at Vicksburg. It is a battle that even the modest General Grant considers his highest achievement. His reward for this victory? Grant is called to Chattanooga, Tennessee to do it all over again. President Lincoln has made Grant the commander of all Western armies and now sends him to break the siege and rescue General William Rosencrantz's Union troops. Historian Garrow Edelman sums up the situation. By the summer of 1863, the Union Army had moved all the way through Tennessee and captured Chattanooga. The Union Army then moved into Georgia, but the Confederates lashed back and won a huge victory. The Union Army retreated back into Chattanooga. The Confederates followed, occupying the heights around the city, and U.S. Grant is brought into Chattanooga to do what he does best, win. The Confederate general, Braxton Bragg, positioned his army on the two ridges that surround the city, cutting off the supply of food and munitions to Rosencrantz's men. Grant's challenge is to break through these enemy lines. His first concern is to feed his troops by winning a small engagement on the Confederate side of the Tennessee River to open up his new supply line. Then, like any boss that comes into a new company, Grant wants his people And he immediately calls the four divisions of William Tecumseh Sherman to come to Chattanooga. Grant brings Sherman and most of the troops who fought at Vicksburg, now dubbed the Army of the Tennessee. Historian Barton A. Meyer says, regaining control of Chattanooga is crucial to the Union strategy. It's incredibly high stakes. By holding Chattanooga, you hold one of the most important rail networks in Tennessee. Grant knew if you can hold that rail hub, you can build up a massive effort to invade the Deep South. The loss of Chattanooga would have set the Union war effort back months, if not years. Grant's plan is to go on the attack and drive the Confederates from the city. To do this, he'll command three armies, deploying them from different directions to surround the enemy. Military park ranger Avery Lentz. He's got Sherman with the Army of the Tennessee. He has George Thomas with the Army of the Cumberland. He also has Joseph Hooker, who's coming in from the Eastern Theater. The idea was that Hooker would flank a Confederate position from the south, Sherman would bring his army to the northern flank, and George Thomas would assault the center. Three separate assaults of one position. George Thomas's army had been much maligned for having been 
trapped in a siege, and I think those men were spoiling for a fight as a result. The order was that once they seized the rifle pits, they should stop, reorganize, and then attack the top of Missionary Ridge. But they don't stop. Grant remembers. Without awaiting further orders, our troops went for the crest. The fire along the rebel line was terrific. Cannon and musket balls filled the air. The pursuit continued until the crest was reached. Thomas's men command the ridge, chase out the Confederates, and free the Union forces. It was a fantastic victory for Grant. This is the battle that really, I think, makes the Republic respect Grant as the possible savior. The victory ends Confederate control of Tennessee and opens the door for the Union to move into the Deep South. Grant has shown the country what he is capable of. Princeton historian Alan Gelzo. News of this goes through the North as a great triumph. Grant is now clearly and unambiguously the general who looks like finally the man who can win this war. Lincoln is thrilled. Finally, he has a commander who is not afraid to move decisively. By March of 1864, Lincoln has found his man, and Congress raises Grant to the rank of full lieutenant general, the first general since Washington to hold the full rank of lieutenant general. President Lincoln gives a speech as he presents Grant with his promotion. General Grant, the nation's appreciation of what you have done and its reliance upon you for what remains to be done in the existing great struggle are now presented with this high honor devolves upon you also a corresponding responsibility. Grant replies, Mr. President, I accept the commission with gratitude for the high honor conferred. With the aid of the noble armies that have fought in so many fields for our common country, it will be my earnest endeavor not to disappoint your expectations. I feel the full weight of the responsibilities now devolving on me, and I know that if they are met, it will be due to those armies and above all, to the favor of that providence which leads both nations and men. Military historian Doug Dowds. He is to be in command of all the Union armies. This is novel. Grant and Lincoln never meet each other face to face until Grant shows up in Washington to be promoted to lieutenant general. At this first meeting between Grant and Lincoln, Lincoln declares that he has never professed to being a military man before suggesting several battle strategies of his own. Grant believes they are all wrong, but not wanting to appear rude, says he will do his best with the means at hand and avoid as far as possible annoying the president. He understands what Lincoln needs from him. Grant writes... The president told me that all he had ever wanted was someone who would take responsibility and act. Here's General David Petraeus. 
Lincoln had gone through about every other senior general in the Union Army at this point in time. And finally, Lincoln finds his general, a general who will actually fight. And Grant is truly one of the great battle captains of all time. He is someone who achieved brilliance, tactically, operationally, and strategically. Grant has already shown his tactical and operational skills in commanding multiple brigades and coordinating multiple divisions. Now he must determine how to make best use of the entire Union Army. Grant's idea when he becomes commanding general is to get all of the Union forces to act in harmony. The Southern Army has proved agile when confronting a single line of attack. But Grant believes they won't be able to withstand advances from multiple fronts. His plan? Attack a number of critical Confederate holdouts at once. Mobile, Alabama, where the most important Confederate port operates. The Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, which is the breadbasket of the South. And Richmond, Lee's stronghold, the capital of the Confederacy. If Grant can force Lee's armies to defend the Shenandoah Valley and Mobile Bay, he can come at Richmond from two sides while Lee's attention is divided. Historian Barton Meyer says... Grant understands what Lee's army represents to the South. Grant's strategic genius was the ability to move five different armies simultaneously. But also, Grant recognized the destruction of Robert E. Lee's army, the symbol of Confederate nationalism, was fundamental to winning the war. Robert E. Lee's army had countless times defeated Union armies on the battlefield with brilliant tactical maneuvers. So there was a confidence, there was an esprit de corps that bound that army together. And spirits are high and ready for an engagement. Robert E. Lee is born the scion to two of the oldest elite families of the state of Virginia. And in many ways, Robert E. Lee becomes the general most connected with the institution of slavery and protecting that institution. Author Ta-Nehisi Coates says, Lee and Grant could not have been more different. Grant had none of that mystique. There was no illusion of a guy, you know, who was high-born in the way that Lee was. But, you know, when I see you on the battlefield, none of that matters. It's just me and you. But all of Grant's success had been in the Western Theater, and everybody would argue, you're not out in the Western Theater anymore. You're fighting Robert E. Lee. Of course, we could flip that coin and say, Robert E. Lee is now fighting Ulysses S. Grant. 
Grant arrives in Washington in the spring of 1864, ready to take command. He immediately puts himself at the center of the action. Historian Barton A. Myers. Grant is going to personally attach himself to George Gordon Meade's Army of the Potomac, which is going to latch on like a bulldog to Robert E. Lee's Army in Northern Virginia. Here's professor of military history, Ethan Rafuse. There's sort of a sense that, okay, Robert E. Lee is the champion of the Eastern Theater. And we've tried challenger after challenger after challenger. But now we're bringing in our best guy from the West. True to form, Grant goes on the offensive. He'll take aim at Lee directly. Historian Alan Gelzo says that the Grant Meade's troops meet that May in Virginia is not the man they expected. Meade's staff are surprised. This was a slightly ordinary figure who looked like a merchant who'd just come from a store. But then you met his eye, that icy, cold eye that Grant could somehow have, and suddenly knew this man was totally in charge of things. One clerk was advised, when Grant gives you a straight order, obey it. When you have information for Grant, give it to him straight. And above all, don't say sir too much. Grant's not interested in that. The first challenge will take Grant into some of the most difficult territory he's yet to face. He'll start in an area to the west of Fredericksburg, Virginia. To reach Richmond, Grant will have to take his army south through thickly wooded terrain bounded by several lakes and rivers. Ranger Avery Lentz describes the setting. Through most of the winter of 1863 and 1864, the Union Army and the Confederates have been glaring at each other, waiting for the spring to come so that the new campaign can begin. Grant wants to get south so he can engage Confederates in more open ground. But before he does that, he has to go across the Rapidan River and go through an area deemed as almost Lee's hunting ground for Union armies, the wilderness. The wilderness of Spotsylvania was 70 square miles of dense forest. Grant sees two options, both difficult. Flank Lee and get to Richmond from the west, which leaves Washington exposed, or head south, get to Lee by going through the wilderness. They'll need to move quickly, get to the other side of the woods and back into the open. It was difficult for massed groups of soldiers to move through this particular area of Virginia. Lee knew this ground. He knew it well. He was going to use every tree and every bush to try to delay Grant's actions. Military historian Doug Dowds says the situation does not favor the Union forces. The great advantage of the Union Army against the Army of Northern Virginia is in numbers and artillery, in that choked vine forest, numbers matter less, and you cannot bring your artillery to bear. In fact, the Army of the Potomac fought there against Robert E. Lee at the Battle of Chancellorsville earlier in the war and had lost. Lee is going to violate all kind of military principles, divide his army in the face of a larger enemy, and though outnumbered two to one, he will drive the Union Army back across the river. This is the magic of Robert E. Lee. Military historian Ethan Rafuse agrees that Lee has the advantage here. The Chancellorsville battlefield and the Wilderness battlefield are pretty much right on top of each other. And during the initial phase of the Wilderness campaign, 
when Grant and the Army of the Potomac cross the river, they see the remains of the battle of the year before. Grant recognizes the power Lee holds over the Union forces. They fear him. It's not merely a tactical challenge, but a psychological one, too. Grant writes, The natural disposition of most people is to clothe the commander of a large army they do not know with almost superhuman abilities. A large part of the National Army, for instance, and most of the press of the country clothed General Lee with just such qualities. But I had known him personally and knew that he was mortal. Grant understands that he will need to dispel the mystique around Lee, and one way to do that is to show his own lack of fear. Lee, on the other hand, is confident that his strategy can defeat Grant. Avery Lentz again. The Army of the Potomac numbers about 120,000 men. The Confederate Army numbers approximately 62,000. Lee knows he's outnumbered, but he knows that if he can bottle them up somewhere, those superior numbers won't account for anything. The Confederates, they've rebounded since their defeat from Gettysburg and also the Union Army of the Potomac. Coming off that victory at Gettysburg, they're ready to keep following up that success. That mentality, I think, explains the ferocity of the fighting that follows. Both armies enter the wilderness. Neither is prepared for what they will encounter there. Grant realizes this battle will pit each side's best soldiers against each other. He writes, We had to have hard fighting. The two armies now confronting each other had been in deadly conflict for so long without any decisive result. They hardly knew which could whip the other. Military historian Harry Labor. This is the first time that Grant and Lee go into battle. The two headliners of the war at the Battle of the Wilderness in May of 1864. Grant crosses into territory where Lee has his army deployed, and it's a pretty brutal fight. Lee was actually moving very aggressively. He wanted to attack Grant. He wanted to push Grant out of Virginia. Once Grant crosses the river, you see two steely-eyed killers who go at each other. It's relentless, it's brutal, it's nonstop, it's exhausting. Grant is going to tell Meade, you do not wait for them to attack you, you attack them. General Meade, for his part, is anxious to right the error he made in allowing Lee to escape after Gettysburg. Why does he do this? Because his object is to go ahead and fight Robert E. Lee. He takes tactical risk fighting in the wilderness because there is a opportunity to destroy parts of Lee's army. It throws Lee for a loop because Lee thought he had Grant pegged. Lee's going off the old rule book here. Union Army is not going to act aggressively. And at the wilderness, that preconceived notion that he had really gets destroyed. Grant firmly believes that if he can retain the initiative, he can force the other army to react to him. Uh, he believes the Confederate Army should march to a Union drum. Therefore, he's going to continue to push and drive those Confederates. But conditions in the wilderness create a truly hellish confrontation. This is not one of those wide-open battlefields that you can see long lines of clashing troops. Visibility is less than 20 yards. Throw in the smoke and noise of battle, and now it's even more confusing. It had been a very dry spring. Now, if you think of men firing their muskets, there's going to be a flash of fire, and all it takes is one spark, and the real horrors of the wilderness begin. 
Gunfire from both sides set off an immediate blaze. The fires are going to grow in intensity. For the men who are wounded, they can either crawl to the enemy lines or you can always kill themselves with a revolver. For the living soldiers, at the end of this fight, they have to now listen to men scream to death as they're burned alive in this fire. And they now have to smell their bodies as it's roasted in the conflagration. And that is something that truly sticks with them for the rest of their lives. Grant later writes, the woods were set on fire by the bursting shells. The wounded who had not strength to move themselves were either suffocated or burned to death. But the battle still raged, our men firing through the flames until it became too hot to remain longer. In the wilderness was a brutal, bloody battle, similar to the battle they'd fought at Chancellorsville the year before, almost in the exact same location. And that battle had ended with the Union Army pulling back from the field and trying to regenerate itself and, and get itself back into condition. The second day of confused fighting ends in darkness, with no resolution for either side. Grant plans to attack again the next day before dawn. He writes, I was anxious that the rebels should not take the initiative in the morning and therefore ordered an assault. Union forces were successful initially in the morning. They catch the Confederate Third Corps under AP Hill by surprise. They push them a good mile, and it looks like Lee's right flank is about to cave in. But then, the reinforcements Lee had been awaiting appear. Longstreet arrives to save the day in the nick of time. James Longstreet had actually attended Ulysses S. Grant's wedding, and he is Lee's most trusted subordinate. He is the old warhorse. The Confederates slam into Union lines, but the Union had bolstered their defenses. Ultimately, the series of assaults fail. And James Longstreet will be accidentally wounded by his own men, shot in the neck, nearly choking to death on his own blood before he can be moved from the field. The wilderness is on fire. One soldier describes it as a battle of invisibles versus invisibles. They could not see the enemy army. Soldiers are trapped. They cannot find their way out. By the end of two days of combat, the Union Army has sustained about 17,000 men killed, captured, wounded, or missing. Confederates are about 11,000. For the first time after a battle, Grant finds himself overwhelmed by emotion. He writes, Our losses in the wilderness were severe. Those of the Confederates must have been even more so but I have no means of speaking with accuracy upon this point. We could claim no victory over the enemy. Neither did they gain a single advantage. For all that destruction, the battle ends in a very bloody draw. Some of Lee's men think their side has won. Lee knows better. He asks them, have you met Grant? He's not a retreating man. Alan Gelzo again. After two days of the most brutal, vicious fighting in the wilderness of Virginia, soldiers of the Army of the Potomac and their opposite numbers in the Army of Northern Virginia had fought themselves to a standstill. Usually when a standstill like that happened, 
The result was that the Union Army would pack its bags and go back across the Rapidan River. As it had happened, literally one year before, at the Battle of Chancellorsville, the question in the minds of these soldiers was, what direction is Ulysses Grant going to take us? I now felt the full weight of responsibility on my shoulders. In war, anything is better than indecision. We must decide. If I'm wrong, we shall soon find out and can do the other thing. Not to decide wastes both time and money and may ruin everything. True to his character, Grant chooses the more difficult way. And so Grant arrives at the critical intersection in the wilderness if he was going to move farther south around Lee's flank, seizing the strategic initiative to threaten the Confederate capital, Richmond. And soldiers were waiting to see what direction is he going to take. If he turns to the left, we're going to be retreating back across the river. If he turns right, that means we're heading south. In the past, the Union Army had always retreated after any impasse. It is Grant's confidence that gives his army the will to go on and even to go back on the offensive. His faith in their victory spurs him to set his goals even higher. With Lee's army hobbled and unable to engage, Grant decides to skirt around his position and head south. At Wilderness, that is a tactical loss. And yet Grant stands at those crossroads and goes, this is not a loss. This is the first step to the end of the war. So as he heads south, Grant will fight in a scope and scale beyond anybody's experience. When you think about the Civil War, we say that Confederates are fighting for hearth and home and for this cause of a Southern way of life. Well, look at what the Northerners are fighting for. Think about all those people. They're fighting for this idea. The nation is new. We're largely made up of immigrants. They have come here because they've seen what it's like in the old world. And that idea that all men are created equal, if it doesn't exist here, it doesn't exist anywhere. And therefore, they're willing to fight. Grant sees how his ambition energizes his soldiers. He writes, The greatest enthusiasm was inspired by the fact that the movement was south. It indicated to the men that they had passed through the beginning of the end. There would be no turning back. Grant understood the destruction of Lee's army meant the destruction of the Confederacy. Grant now prepares to strike directly at Richmond, the heart of the Confederacy, and stop it beating once and for all. By 1864, people are tired. There is no clear winner and there is no clear end in sight for this conflict. At the beginning of the campaign, Grant says to him, if you make it and you see President Lincoln, tell him from me that whatever happens, there will be no turning back. If I pin Lee, we'll eat the rest of the Confederacy while we stand here and watch this all take place. That's next time on Making Grant. Making Grant is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. 
Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Galen Mullins edited and mixed this episode with assistance by Max Michael Miller. Grant was originally produced for television by Radical Media for the History Channel.